0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1350. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, Bob Murphy is going to have to be carried out on a stretcher after I am done with him aboard the 2019 Contra Cruise. We are debating pacifism. Bob in favor, me opposed. With Gene Epstein moderating. It's going to be a great time, but it's going to make my demolition of Michael Malice in the Hamilton debate look like a picnic. This debate is for ContraCruisers only, so make sure and grab your cabin right away at ContraCruise.com for the Libertarian Event of the Year. That's ContraCruise.com. Oh, and don't forget, bring some dark clothing for Bob's funeral. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I did an episode Back in, uh, I don't remember when it was, but episode 1340 with Ben Lewis. And in that episode, we talked about some people who were kind of significant in 20th century conservatism and a little bit in libertarianism. And I got some nice feedback about it because I think some people agree with me that it is good to look back at our own history because that conversation, even if you don't think of yourself as a conservative, nevertheless, was about the general question of what is or ought to be the relationship between conservatives and libertarians. Is there a natural affinity there, or are the two polar opposites, or how should we think about this? And as we were pointing out at the time, the let's say in the 1950s and 60s, there were some people who thought I, we've got nothing to do with these people, that Russell Kirk felt that way about libertarians. But on the other hand, there were people like Frank Meyer – who were very interested in libertarianism and who thought that the chasm was not really as wide as people thought. So in the course of that conversation, a guy came up named Robert Nisbet. And I have always listed in my top 10 books people should read his book, The Quest for Community. And I mentioned on that episode that is just – isn't that the worst title for a book you've ever heard? I mean it it does not make you think I have to rush out – go over to Amazon and get that thing immediately. He was being poorly advised, let's say, when he decided on that title. But Nisbet is a tremendous person, a very, very interesting and important figure. And I thought it would be useful to take some time to talk a little bit about him because even though Nisbet didn't like to use the word conservative, he was clearly a conservative. And in fact in the famous george nash book the conservative intellectual movement in america since 1945 talk about terrible titles he classifies nisbet as one of the three traditionalist conservatives because he's looking at post-war american conservatism and he's dividing it into different categories libertarians anti-communists and traditionalists now obviously there's plenty of overlap there. I mean all the libertarians were anti-communist. So anyway, it's, it's an attempt for him to make the subject manageable. But when he looked at the traditionalist conservatives, he came up with Richard Weaver, Robert Nisbet, and Russell Kirk as being his primary traditionalist conservatives. And I've always found that interesting because all three of those in one way or another were anti-war. Now, not, not absolutely Rothbardian anti-war – But pretty darn anti-war, certainly by right wing – You know the the low standards we've come to expect on questions like this from the right wing. By the way, if you hear any slamming doors, I'm actually staying at the Harvard Club of New York right now as I record this. And I've – the position of my room is such that there's a lot of foot traffic going by. So maybe as these people walk by, if they catch a little bit of a a whiff of the Tom Woods show, it will – slow down their natural inclination to destroy civilization as we know it because that's what all the people in this building seem to be up to but anyway so i thought i thought that's interesting stuff that you've got these three people the most significant traditionalist conservatives of the post-war period and to one extent or another they're not warmongers um i mention in uh forget where i wrote this but Russell Kirk, shortly before he died, said that the libertarians basically had it right about foreign policy. It was Russell Kirk who wrote to Lou Rockwell to tell him that George H.W. Bush should be strung up on the White House lawn for war crimes. Ben Lewis and I talked about what Richard Weaver had to say about total war and about the atomic bombings of Japan. And who's the third one? Oh, well, (laughs) the guy I'm talking about today, Robert Nisbet. Well, we're going to Start right in with Nisbet on what he had to say about war, and there's some pretty good material on all this stuff in my book Real Descent, which is from 2014. I was already nearly five years old. I think it came out in like the middle of 2014. But that, by the way, if you're thinking, you know, I ought to read a Woods book. That's actually my favorite of my books, Real Descent, because it's the subject line is uh, is Real Descent. Oh yeah, yeah. A libertarian sets fire to the index card of allowable opinion, and it is arranged in such a way that you can read each chapter independently of every other chapter. So you can pick it up for a few minutes, read something, put it back down. But it gives you a good sample of the kinds of topics I've written about over the years. My prose style is fairly engaging, let's say. There's a lot of neocon bashing in it. So for people who say all Woods does is attack the left wing, well, I suppose it depends on how you classify neoconservatism, doesn't it? But there's plenty of stuff like that. But also I've got some zingers against left libertarians. I've got some zingers against the typical Salon or Slate article that thinks they've got us dead to rights, and I respond to it. There's a lot of really great material in Real Dissent. Plus I narrate the audiobook, so you can even get my intonation For everything, so the audiobook version you can get for free through the Audible offer at TomWoodsAudio.com. Anyway, let's get started here. I used to I used to ask people. In fact, I think I gave a talk on this, and I gave I started with this quotation, and I asked if anybody could have any idea of who might have said it. And the quotation runs as follows: War and the military are, without question, among the very worst of the Earth's afflictions responsible for the majority of the torments, oppressions, tyrannies, and suffocations of thought the West has for long been exposed to. In military or war society, anything resembling true freedom of thought, true individual initiative in the intellectual and cultural and economic areas, is made impossible. Not only cut off when they threaten to appear, but worse, extinguished more or less at root. Between military and civil values, there is and always has been relentless opposition. Nothing has proved more destructive of kinship, religion, and local patriotisms than has war and the accompanying military mind. Well, I suppose you can guess who that is, right? That's Robert Nisbet in 1975 in his book Twilight of Authority. So who was Nisbet? There's a very good biography of Nisbet by a fellow named Brad Lowell Stone, and I think it's actually just called Robert Nisbet. There is a series that the Intercollegiate Studies Institute did of biographies of people – And I think his is just called Robert Nisbet, if you can believe that. Anyway, Nisbet was born in Los Angeles in 1913, did his graduate and undergraduate work at Berkeley, joined the Berkeley faculty in 1939, and then he wound up teaching in both the history and sociology departments of other universities, namely the University of Arizona and Columbia University. He died in 1996 and by that time had written 17 books, and according to his biographer, had gained a reputation among his admirers and detractors alike this is taken right from his from the biography as one of the most original and influential american social theorists of his generation now what i'm doing in this episode is not necessarily giving you an overview of all his work because as you can hear there's a lot of it but rather i'm picking out certain themes that i think are interesting to hear coming from one of the three people identified as belonging to the traditionalist wing of conservatism. He did spend a good deal of his time traveling in conservative circles. He was at the American Enterprise Institute for several years. He was an adjunct scholar there well into the 1980s. He occasionally wrote for periodicals like Commentary, which was a – or is – I think they still publish it – is a a neoconservative publication. And it's interesting that he was such an anti-militarist, and yet he maintained – these connections well one reason for this is he was a very personable guy I mean very likable like me for example although <laughs> although i haven't managed to i have friends at the american enterprise institute but they're not friendly enough i think to have me come give a lecture i don't think that's gonna happen but i like uh, peter wallison that's for sure uh, he's been a good good friend of the show anyway but also he was very influential i mean he he teaches at influential and important prestigious universities. He was the social science editor at Oxford University Press, and it's said that when he received the Albert Schweitzer chair at Columbia, he was at that time the most highly paid professor in America. So yeah, he's the kind of guy people would like to be friends with. And not to mention, I think back then, both the American Enterprise Institute and commentary were better than they are now and less ideologically rigid. I mean, after all, even our friend Bill Kaufman, one of my favorite Tom Woodshow show guests, worked at uh, AEI, which is almost impossible to imagine happening now. Well, anyway, Nisbet wrote this book, Twilight of Authority, in 1975. And I'm really going to be drawing mostly from that book, because I think when people do read Nisbet, they generally read The Quest for Community. And that is something you should get to at one time or another. But let's let's look a little bit at at Twilight of, of Authority. And there are three things that I want to point out in here. His concern about the growth in executive power where conservatives have not exactly been consistent on that. They're concerned about the growth in executive power when their person is out of office kind of thing. Also, his critique of American conservatism is important. And also, his views on the warfare state. These things, I think, are important. So one thing I want to say about the quest for community, the argument in there basically runs as follows, that every major modern political philosopher in the West, so I guess you could start with Hobbes, and go down through, I mean, even Locke believes in a unitary state. Locke is not talking about secession. Uh, Mill, Marx, Hegel, Spinoza, I mean, all these people basically believe there's a state that is indivisible and that, you know, there's no imperium in imperio. There's just one state, and it has supreme authority over everything within its borders, and there's no kind of independent existence of smaller societies within it. So. They take as their starting point that what you have is a central state that rules over an undifferentiated aggregate of individuals. And this state is legally and temporally prior to and superior to all subsidiary associations. This is the model of political organization that we've had in the West since the French Revolution. So every competing center of authority, whether it's family, local community, church, any number of others, is going to be increasingly subordinated to the central state. That's the logic of the system, and that's how it works itself out. And as I said on that Ben Lewis episode, part of the reason that totalitarianism triumphed as it did in the 20th century in Nisbet's view was that these deracinated men who had been stripped of their traditional social identities that these intermediary associations had once provided for them were longing for something to put in their place. And that sense of belonging could be fulfilled – In the totalitarian state, which developed on the ruins of these associations. And so it became a crude substitute for the social identities that smaller associations that had been suppressed or marginalized by the massive bureaucracy at the center had once forged for people. Now, Nisbet never said that the United States was a totalitarian state or anything like that. But he's concerned about the centralization of power. And particularly in the hands of the president, and at the expense of smaller and more immediate associations. When the state is going to take care of, you know, children from birth and I mean all these kinds of functions, it's usurping the power of more local institutions. And those local institutions atrophy as a result, and you're left with just the central state and individuals, which is just the way they like it. The whole cult of personality around the president was just horrific for Nisbet. This mystique that had come to surround the American president. And he says, I mean, imagine he's writing this in the 1970s, and he already sees it. He says, not only what the president thinks on a given public issue, but what he wears, whom he dines with, what major ball or banquet he may choose to give, and what his views are on the most trivial or cosmic of questions. All of this has grown exponentially in the regard lavished by press and lesser political figures upon the presidency during the past four decades. And he says that there were monarchical pretensions in all this. Because as he put it, the first care of royalty is that of being constantly visible and naturally in the best and most contrived possible light for the people. And then Nisbet – these are again Nisbet's words – spoke of a regard for the monarch that makes him virtually sacred in presence, that thereby gives his person a privileged status in all communications and that creates inevitably the psychology of constant unremitting protection of the president, not merely from physical harm but from unwelcome news, advice, counsel, and even contact with officers of government. And it's interesting, now, apart from that last point, which might be referring to the special relationship that Nixon had with Kissinger when it came to foreign policy decisions, Nisbet's description sounds like it could be the Bush presidency or subsequent presidencies. So in case it seems overwrought to compare the president with kings of yore, then Nisbet invites us to think about the official iconography, the official ceremony, the architecture, even that now surrounds the American president. So he quotes Russell Baker, who wrote for the New York Times, as saying this The Rayburn building dwarfs the Forum of the Caesars. Mussolini would have sobbed in envy. But the Kennedy Center nearly succeeds for barefaced oppression of the individual spirit. Poor Lincoln, down the road a piece in his serene little Greek temple, would be crumpled like a candy wrapper if the Kennedy Center could flex an elbow. The Pentagon of the warlike 40s is matched by a monstrous new Copagon, home of the FBI, astride Pennsylvania Avenue. The vast labyrinths bordering the mall would make a minotaur beg for mercy. And then he says – this is Baker being quoted by Nisbet. My misgivings are not about the wretched architects who must give Washington what it pays for, but about their masters who have chosen to abandon the human scale for the Stalinesque. Man is out of place in these ponderosities. They are designed to make man feel negligible, to intimidate him, to overwhelm him with the evidence that he is a cipher, a trivial nuisance in the great institutional scheme of things. Now, you can just imagine today Baker would be called an America hater, but Nisbet answered this analysis with sympathy. He says, it has always been thus, merely compare the public architecture of Greece before and after the rise of Alexander, of Rome before and after Augustus, and before and after the eruption of first Renaissance despots in Italy and then divine right monarchs. The change in American government that has taken place during the past several decades is almost perfectly evidenced by the change in the style and character of its buildings in Washington. So that is an interesting observation, and it seems to me that this spectacle, and these outsized monuments and buildings are the kinds of things that I think a lot of conservatives today would celebrate and would, would make them feel patriotic, and Nisbet is saying, no, 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 there's something sick about this, and you should feel sick, about it rather than feel your patriotism being encouraged. Then he says that, of course, remember 1975, that's not too long after Watergate, right? So he says that at that time there was a good deal of resentment against royalism in the White House. And he knew that wasn't going to last. And he put it this way there are too many powerful voices among intellectuals in press, foundation, and elsewhere that want a royal president provided only that he is the right kind of individual. And he says that the only lessons that are going to be learned from Watergate would be, and these are his words, to avoid such idiocies as tapes and illegal, unwarranted break-ins. I would be astonished if the real lesson of Watergate, the Actonian principle that all power tends to corrupt, absolute power absolutely, were other than forgotten utterly – Once a crowd-pleasing president with the kind of luster a John F. Kennedy had for academy, press, and the world of intellectuals generally comes back into the White House. Well, you got that certainly with Barack Obama. And he says that for the left, a strong president as a unifying force is just too central to the way they look at the world and to the way they want things to be to let a Nixon get in the way of it. Yes, Nixon disappointed us, but that doesn't mean we're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We need the imperial presidency. So Nisbet writes, there are those such as Arthur Schlesinger who argue indeed that only a strong and richly visible president can hold the fabric of democracy intact, that the president is the only vital symbol of unity and consensus. Now, that could have been written by a neoconservative, and that's Arthur Schlesinger who was kind of the house historian of uh, the Democrats before there was a Doris Kearns Goodwin. But it wasn't just executive power that Nisbet thought conservatives were showing no interest in limiting. It was just federal government power. So he writes, the prospects for conservatism are hardly bright. It became great by virtue of its fight against power, which is now being converted into a fight for capture of power, central power. And then later in another book, 11 years later, he wrote a book called Conservatism, Dream, and Reality – Things had not, in his judgment, improved. Now, he's totally misleading when he uses the, the expression far right, but leave that aside and listen to this. He says, the far right is less interested in burking in immunities from government power than it is in putting a maximum of governmental power in the hands of those who can be trusted. It is control of power, not diminution of power, that ranks high. Thus, when Reagan was elected, conservatives hoped for the quick abolition of such government monstrosities as the Department of Energy, the Department of Education, and the two national endowments of the arts and humanities, all creations of the political left. The far right in the Reagan phenomenon saw it differently, however. They saw it as an opportunity for retaining and enjoying the powers, and the far right prevailed. It seeks to prevail also in the establishment of a national industrial strategy, a government corporation structure in which the conservative dream of free private enterprise would be extinguished. Well, then what he has to say about the warfare state, again, will come as a surprise to people who get their conservatism, let's say, from other sources. He says, the day is long past when this phrase national security was restricted to what is required in actual war. As everyone knows, it has been since World War II under FDR, a constantly widening cloak or umbrella for governmental actions of every conceivable degree of power, stealth, and cunning by an ever-expanding core of government officials. And then he continues, As we now know in detail... The utilization of the FBI and other paramilitary agencies by presidents and other high executive department officers for the purposes of eavesdropping, electronic bugging, and similarly intimate penetrations of individual privacy goes straight back to FDR, and the practice has only intensified and widened ever since. Naturally, all such royalist invasions have been justified right down to Watergate under the name of national security. The record is clear and detailed that national security cover-up has been a practice of each of the presidents since FDR. Then he says that of all the misapplications of the word conservative in recent memory, the most amusing in a historical light is surely the application of conservative to great increases in military expenditures – For in America throughout the 20th century, and including four substantial wars abroad, conservatives had been steadfastly the voices of non-inflationary military budgets and of an emphasis on trade in the world instead of American nationalism. In the two world wars in Korea and in Vietnam, the leaders of American entry into war were such renowned liberal progressives as Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and John F. Kennedy. In all four episodes, conservatives, both in the national government and in the rank and file, were largely hostile to intervention, were isolationists indeed. And so, he says that combining traditional conservatism with military adventurism and ideological crusading is a non-starter. These things are oil and water. Even in the rhetoric of Ronald Reagan, Nisbet found a great deal that should Disturb a traditional conservative. He says, President Reagan's deepest soul is not Republican conservative, but New Deal Second World War Democrat. Thus his well-noted preference for citing FDR and Kennedy as noble precedents for his actions rather than Coolidge, Hoover, or even Eisenhower. The word revolution springs lightly from his lips for anything from tax reform to narcotics prosecution. Reagan's passion for crusades, moral and military is scarcely American conservative. And then he reminds us, that is Nisbet, that it's not right to think that the political left in history has generally opposed war per se. And Nisbet is going to point out that if you look in history, hard leftists generally see a lot of potential in war. And so he says Napoleon was the perfect exemplar of revolution as well as of war, not merely in France but throughout almost all of Europe and even beyond. Marx and Engels were both keen students of war, profoundly appreciative of its properties with respect to large-scale institutional change. From Trotsky and his Red Army down to Mao and Zhou Enlai in China today, the uniform of the soldier has been the uniform of the revolutionist. And then Nisbet says, War is by nature revolutionary in its impact upon a people. Its values are antithetical in the extreme. ...to the values of kinship-based society with its consecration of tradition, conventionality, and age or seniority. And then he says, the revolutionary and the military man both have a disdain for, quote, traditional civil society, its privileges, immunities, and conventional authorities... ...because these things to them can seem egoistic, venal, needlessly competitive, often corrupt, and fettered by privilege unearned. Careful reading of the memoirs of the great generals in history will, I am sure, reveal as much distaste for all this as one finds in the memoirs of revolutionists. But then also you don't have to be a leftist that's quite uh, that extreme. We don't have to look just there to find enthusiasm for war. So... We look at American intellectuals at the time of World War I. Well, they weren't Lenin. They weren't Mao. But still, they were practically unanimous in favoring U.S. entry into World War I, in part because they understood that it represented an opportunity to expand government at home and to bring about institutional change. Because they were convinced that wartime economic planning would have good effects. It would erode Americans' beliefs in the limits of government and their beliefs in the rights of private property. And then once you have the experience of wartime planning, it never really fades from the national consciousness. So once you get uh, the New Deal, well, the rallying cry becomes, well, we planned in war, so now we shall plan in peace. And Nisbet says, in terms of frequency of use of such symbols by the national government – he's talking about the ubiquitous war symbolism in the imagery adopted by the New Deal – Nisbet says, in terms of frequency of use of such symbols by the national government, not even Hitler's Germany outdid our propaganda. And then finally he says that this is not an anomaly. He says, it is in time of war that many of the reforms first advocated by socialists have been accepted by capitalist governments and made part of the structures of their societies. Equalization of wealth, progressive taxation, nationalization of industries, the raising of wages and improvements in working conditions, worker management councils, housing ventures, death taxes, unemployment insurance plans, pension systems, and the enfranchisement of formerly voteless elements of the population have all been, in one country or another, achieved or advanced under the impress of war. Wow. That's a sample of Robert Nisbet for you. And he doesn't sound like a lot of the right-wing radio personalities we all know. He sounds uh, rather different. And yet, there it is for you, right? This is one of the – and I could have done a similar talk uh, based on Richard Weaver. And maybe at some point I will do that. In fact, that's a good idea for an episode. But that's how far things have have moved. So it's not just crazy talk to say, you know, in the old days they weren't all, you know, know-nothing – Um, And by know nothing, I just mean literally they know nothing, cheerleaders for war. They weren't. But unfortunately, eh. now maybe with Trump, since there are a lot of conservatives who seem to want to support him no matter what he does, well, some of them now can suddenly be heard saying, yeah, what are we doing in Syria and Afghanistan? All right, well, I'm not going to go up to them and say, now, where were you 10 years ago? I mean, better late than never. But yeesh, man, (laughs) it shouldn't have taken that it should have been these people should have been better is all i can say especially when you look at the the material effects of these wars and what happened to so many innocent people particularly in the middle east and as i've said before if that had been an earthquake well everybody'd be all tears and pity for those people but it's the us government raining down its its righteous fury on a regime well then we just have to pretend that this stuff didn't happen or doesn't exist or doesn't matter or shouldn't disturb our military parades Uh, at some point that that dehumanizes you and you just gotta you gotta wake yourself up out of that and no those were not yeah the war against saddam hussein was absolutely necessary and unavoidable and led to great consequences really when you look at what happened to the Middle East and what happened to people and refugees and and deaths and destruction of civil society. And come on. So you can do better than that. That's all I can say to conservatives anymore. You know, you can do better than that. You should do better than that. You're the ones who lecture the whole world about government propaganda. And yet you fall for the crudest, worst, most destructive government propaganda of all. All right, I think that's all I have to say for today. But um, remember... We have a really, really thriving group of folks who have great, great exchanges. We learn from each other. We help each other uh, out of interesting intellectual jams. And I'm in there uh, chit-chatting with everybody as well. It's the Tom Wood Show elite. And if that little voice in your head is telling you that you belong there, well, listen to that little voice in your head. Head over to supportinglisteners.com, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.